Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name may or may not be Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with one of our new favorite authors, Derek Thompson. By the way, he is so... I don't know. I just enjoyed this a lot. He's so cool. I'm like fangirling over here, and it's fine. And if you're wondering... Derek Thompson, that sounds familiar. Hmm. Hmm. That's because he is an exclusive member of hey. the Learner's Corner Recommended Resources. Hey, now. Because we actually recommended his book a few weeks ago, hey. which is Hit Makers, which m- must pick up book. Oh, my gosh. Must pick up book. It, one of the Caleb best has already said, you've already said this, that it is going to be one of your top books of 2018. Definitely. Will be. And... The stories in it are amazing. You're going to get to hear some of the stories in our upcoming interview with him in just a few minutes. And Unbelievable it's stuff. Just so good. Unbelievable so good stuff. A little bit about uh, Derek Thompson. He is a writer for The Atlantic, so that's kind of his, his day job. Um, but, you know, he, he does all sorts of other stuff. But one of them is being an author on top of that. And so, um, you know, you're going to get to hear a lot, a lot about Hitmakers. But what is Hitmakers? Like, what is that? Hitmakers is, he, he kind of wrote this book looking at what makes something trend what makes something blow up what makes something go viral talks about things like pokemon go talks about things um like why songs blow up and some don't and how that all works spotify spotify different companies he talks about different companies and why that worked and why other things didn't fascinating book even more fascinating conversation and yes i just put that on us i'm speaking things into existence today caleb i'm speaking things into existence before we get into this great conversation, we do Ayo. have our Learner's Corner Uh-oh. recommended resource of Here week. we go. Boom. Now, as we mentioned, Hitmakers is a Learner's Corner recommended resource. Go get that. It's there. It's already been talked about. That is not our official one of the day, though. Not this week, though. This week, I want to recommend a podcast. Oh, my gosh, with the podcast. Guys, we need you to start submitting like other things so that we don't constantly have to be doing podcasts because that's what all we do is podcasts. Yeah, let, let us let us know what your Learner's Corner Recommended Please. Resource of the Week is. give it to us. Use the hashtag Learner's Corner Recommended Resource. Boom. But. What is it? This week is, it's actually just a podcast in general that has become one of my favorite podcasts that I listen mm. to. Mm. Todd, do you know what this is? Uh, is it Rethinking Youth Ministry? No, we already talked about is that. Is it Annie F. Downs? That sounds fun. Yes. Boom sauce. Yes. It has become one of my favorite podcasts that I've listened to. That sounds fun with Annie F. Downs. Not Annie Downs, as she will tell you. Annie F. Downs. So you got to get on that. It's one of the most. Couple people. Who who some who is your favorite so far that she's interviewed? She does she does. I'll tell you, my mine's John Christ. She interviewed John Christ, the com- the Christian comedian. Um, she interviewed him. That was my favorite, but she's interviewed other people. Um, I know John Acuff. Is John Acuff. Here's one of the people you may not know him very well. Kevin Queen. Hey. That's a deep cut. Hey. Gonna recommend. That's 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 a deep. He says that's a deep cut. Oh so my gosh. that's our Learners Corner podcast recommended resource of the week. Now, without further ado, we have a great conversation with Derek, and we're gonna jump into that right now. Well, Derek, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner to talk about your book, Hitmakers. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You know, just as we kind of get started, you know, we were just kind of curious, what made you want to write this book? 
Yeah, I so I'm a macroeconomics writer. I write about like you know the the labor market and um, you know businesses and retail and stuff like that for the Atlantic. And um, I'm always sort of looking for the bigger question, the bigger idea underneath the stories I'm writing about. And it's tough to think of a bigger question than why do things become popular? Um, Why do some ideas succeed and other really similar products or ideas fail? Uh, and so I really wanted to go at that at the length that that deserved. And that wasn't a blog post or, or even a feature piece that seemed to require a book. Um, and so uh, I spent a few years writing this book essentially about, uh, you know, stories of, of hits in, in pop culture history uh, and what they tell us about uh, our mind, the human mind and why we like what we like. Mm-hmm. So I, I absolutely love the book. I love all the stories throughout. Oh, it my gosh. And everything. And, you know, one of the things that you say is that it's it's difficult to predict to what will be a hit sometimes. And so why why is it so difficult to do that? Well, I think that that hits follow certain rules, but don't follow formula. So um, to give an example, um, uh, there are rules for hitting home runs, but there's a formula for salt. Right. Sodium plus chloride equals salt. Like we know that that always works. It worked a million years ago. It works now. The elements never change. The problem with culture, though, is that the elements are always changing. You know, rock and roll is scary. Then it's mainstream. Then it's old fashioned. Uh, rap is scary. Then it's mainstream. And then it sound changes every few years. So culture is, by definition, changed. And as a result, it doesn't yield to formulas. That said, it does have certain rules. And this is a book about outlining those rules. So, you know, the way I think about it sometimes is like, is there a formula for hitting a home run? Of course not. That's like stupid to promise. But there are clearly rules. There are good batting coaches. And there are um, lessons that you can take to improve your odds of hitting a home run. And so this is like a home run book. Um, You're not going to find any, you know, five-part formula for popularity. Uh, but there are some clear theses, I think, that we can talk about um, that will vastly uh, raise uh, the odds that either your product will succeed or that you'll understand the success um, of other products and ideas. One of the ideas that you talk about early on in the book is um, the idea of the power of mere exposure and then familiarity. Um, how how as a brand or as a person, um, how can you capitalize on mere exposure and just familiarity? Talk to Great. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is like pretty much the first idea of the book and maybe the most important idea of the book, which is that um, modern culture has this myth of novelty. You know, on the one hand, uh, we think that we want new movies and we need new fashions and we need new ideas. And even in the news media, there's that word new that lives inside of the word news. Um, But that our appetite for novelty is kind of a myth that fundamentally... uh, all humans have a bias for the familiar. We like familiar music. In fact, 90% of the time we're listening to music. We're listening to a song we've already heard. Um, every year this century, you talk about movies, every year this century, majority of the top 10 films in the U.S. have been sequels, adaptations, and reboots. So familiar, familiar, familiar. Um, that this sort of appetite for familiarity just sort of permeates the cultural landscape. Um, and that essentially, if you're trying to design a new product, um, the most important thing is to make it sneakily familiar to your audience. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I say in the book, uh, by way of sort of, um, uh, sloganizing, uh, my thesis is if you're trying to sell something surprising, make it familiar. But if you're trying to sell something familiar, make it surprising. So it depends on what sort of 
part of that spectrum you're starting. If you're, say, I'll just give one example. If you're a technologist, almost by definition, you're starting with surprising, right? Um, AI assistance didn't exist five years ago. Um, smartphones didn't really exist 15 years ago. So when Apple or Amazon are designing a new technology, they're designing something that's starting off surprising. So how do they sell it? Well, they make it familiar. Um, Steve Jobs, when he was designing the first Macintosh computer, famously said that the demonstration of it had to say hello on the screen in cursive. He said the, the screen itself had to look like a face, the face of a friend, um, to sell something surprising. The personal computer in the 1980s, his challenge and his success was to make it familiar. Now, you mentioned in the book um, that there is a dark side to hits. Um, and this is kind of what I wanted to ask you is what are some of the negative effects of hits or like what is this dark side that you talk about? It makes me feel like Star Wars. <laughs> right. Uh, right. The dark side of the force. Um, so basically, you know, hits, popular cultural products are essentially a reflection of human nature. And human nature isn't all good. Human nature sometimes is the opposite of good. Sometimes it's disgusting. Uh, one of the um, most popular movies uh, of the first half of the 20th century was Birth of a Nation, which was an explicitly racist film um, that was popular because so many Americans were racist. It held up a mirror to their tastes, showed their familiarities um, in, you know, sometimes brilliant uh, production and direction, but the underlying substance was was pure dreck. Um, so I think it's important throughout a book where I sort of valorize the concept of familiarity as a golden, you know, god particle of liking to also point out, look, familiarity isn't all good or all bad. Familiarity is a mercenary, and you can use it however you want. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, you look at sort of the history of movies is a great example because movies are such a, a beautiful and frankly explicit representation of audience values. Um, you know, we like Disney movies because they always end with Disney values that we've decided are good, right? Uh, trust your friends, love your friends, love yourself, love your family, try hard. You know, these are the Disney virtues um, and they represent American virtues or, or even worldwide virtues. But sometimes um, the virtues represented in movies are, uh, are indeed a reflective of the dark side. So let's take, for example, the way that movies have historically represented women. Um, women are far less likely uh, to be represented as leaders, um, far less likely to be represented as heroes in films, far more likely to be represented um, as sex objects, um, far more likely to be represented with few clothes on, even if it's a, a, a younger actress. Um, more complicatedly, in movies that tend to have uh, heroines, um, we, there seems to be a pattern where we represent strong women as always having a, a secret um, uh, vulnerability about them. So to pick a quick example, let's think about uh, Devil Wears Prada. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie either yes. ever or recently. But in the Devil Wears Prada, you know, Meryl Streep's character um, is a total badass. Like, you know, very similar to um, the lead in, in Wall Street, but, you know, more yes. moral, you could argue. Um, uh, at the same time, whereas Michael Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, never really apologizes, never has to cry for the audience to like him, in Devil Wears Prada, you guys might remember, there's a handful of scenes where um, 
Anne Hathaway accidentally walks in on Meryl Streep crying over her, the dissolution of her relationship. Yep. Um, this comes from a, an idea in Hollywood that audiences will only accept strong women if they believe that strength is a sort of fake exoskeleton um, underneath which you have this sort of vulnerable underbelly of femininity. Um, now, this is just a, a straightforwardly sexist assumption that women can only be strong if that strength is a mirage, and underneath it all, they're actually just, you know, delicate flowers. Um, nonetheless, films seem to perpetuate this sexist assumption precisely by just making films over and over and over and over again that keep pumping it out and teaching younger people who are more vulnerable and sensitive about, you know, about values, value systems, um, you know, what is right. Um, so that's the dark side of hits. Hits have the power to persuade. Um, cultural products have the power to instill in its audiences a sense of, of, uh, of moral valence. And when that morality is, is screwy, um, then, of course, there's a dark side. You know, another thing that you talk about is that, you know, how teen culture has led um, to really influence what has become, you know, what current day popular is. And so... You know, what what kind of led to teenagers and maybe high school students having this type of influence and this type of impact? Well, I think there's there's a couple things. Um, first, you know, there's this concept in developmental psychology to start off kind of wonky. And I promise I'll, I'll walk this this answer back to the realm of more interestingness. But to start kind of wonky, there's this idea in developmental psychology of, of sensitive periods. Um that uh, the sensitive period for food is when we're really young kids. Um, but, you know, a 70-year-old who doesn't like peanut butter isn't going to start liking peanut butter. Um, the sensitive period for uh, music taste seems to be between our early late teens and uh, early 20s. Um, you know, you tend to like the music you were listening to when you were 22. And by the time you're in your 30s, you kind of stop seeking out new music. Um, so the sensitive period tends to be when we're younger. That means high schoolers, A, are establishing their taste, and B, because they're establishing it, they're trying out new things. So to the extent that culture moves forward, to the extent that it changes over, that in music we go from liking um, uh, you know, uh, hair metal bands to liking hip-hop, um, that's a change that has to be driven by young people, precisely because older people who like poison at 35, aren't going to stop liking poison at 45. Um, so teenagers are the motor of culture. They are the engine of forward movement. Um, and as a result, it's just so important, not only to sort of follow teen taste because they're predictive of the future, but also I think not to be overly judgmental of teen tastes because look, they, you need the engine. Unless you want culture to be the still pond you, you need teenagers and younger people to move forward culture. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's just so important. This is something I'm super excited to ask you about. Um, so just as I was reading through the book, uh, everybody talks about the word viral. Mm -hmm. Talk about how things go viral or that video is viral or did you see that tweet that went viral or whatever. Um, you, you actually um, give a different take on this and actually say that uh, – Going viral is a myth. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think basically the concept of virality is just, it's just a lot of hogwash right now. Um, when something becomes popular really quickly, we just say, oh, it went viral. It's just, it's just a default. Um, but this is really, really imprecise. Because um, the concept of, of, of viral and virality in epidemiology means something really specific. It means that a disease spreads intimately 
between people without any big blast, just over and over and over again across many, many generations, like, you know, the measles, right? Or you can imagine even like a rumor um, might spread this way, um, sort of just, just between people. But information doesn't spread just between people. There's another way information spreads, and that's broadcasts. So the Super Bowl, I don't know if you guys watched the Super Bowl. I did. Um, there was this Tide advertisement in the Super Bowl that people seemed to like. Oh, yeah. um, now, it would have been crazy for you guys to say, oh, that Tide ad went totally viral after the Super Bowl. Like, uh, guys, 130 million people saw it at the exact same time. Like, by no meaningful definition of the concept of virality did that thing go, go viral. It was a one to 100 million moment. So throughout history, the history of ideas, you might have asked, you might have wondered, you know, how do ideas spread? They spread between people um, exclusively, or do they spread over broadcasts? And the answer is, well, they seem to spread mostly through broadcasts. When data scientists have looked at YouTube videos that seem to be viral or memes that seem to be viral, when they've studied the map of those ideas spreading through the internet, this information cascade, they said, oh, this doesn't look like a virus at all. This looks like a series of diffuse broadcasts. And that means that when something seems to go viral online, you shouldn't just default to saying, oh, it's just spreading organically between people, right? No. It almost always has some dark broadcast behind it, something you can't see, some broadcaster, influence network, or other broadcast network that's essentially pushing this idea out to people. Um, and you know, we saw this with fake news. We thought it was pure viral, and then it turned out to be a bunch of Russian propagandists. Um, and I think that we should look for it everywhere, that, that when we think something just went viral, we're almost always wrong. I always think of the Pokemon Go um, phenomena that happened in 2000, what was that, 16? Oh, yeah. 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 And you've actually mentioned that in the book. I do. I mentioned it briefly. So, yeah, Pokemon Go is is a really interesting example of how the media amplifies theoretically viral trends. Right. You you have a a media um, uh, sort of apparatus, a media ecosystem of websites that are obsessed with publishing articles about new phenomena. Um, And so the way that people found out about Pokemon Go wasn't just like their uh, their friend or their neighbor or, you know, the, the parent of a, of a, of a friend that told them about it. A lot of them found out about it because it was on like the front page of the New York times and the front page of time and the front page of the Atlantic, um, or the homepage of the Atlantic. Um, these are all broadcasters. Um, and so, you know, media organizations are sort of doing this bizarre thing where we're both broadcasting ideas while claiming that they're going viral, right? Which just tells you how screwed up our concept of virality is. And again, some people, you know, listen to this might be like, look, who cares if it's a million one-to-one moments or one one one-to-one million moment? Like who cares how information spreads? But this is really important, actually. It's important for both consumers and producers. It's important for consumers because we should just stop imagining that things are just going viral and start remembering that um, there are people with with incentives and interests behind articles of content, and we should be concerned about why some things, particularly important things, are going viral. Who is behind that virality? On a producer standpoint, you know, I think that the viral myth sort of tricks people into thinking if you make something really funny, it'll just distribute itself. It'll just spread. You know, I, I made something. It's funny. It's like the measles. It'll just catch on. But like, just about nothing just catches on. Almost everything requires the the you know a, a distribution plan, a marketing plan. Um, 
And so that's why half of this book is indeed dedicated, not just to the psychology of content, but to the economics of distribution. Okay, I have a question. You've talked about Pokemon Go. I know in the book you mentioned like kind of the, the story of like Spotify a little bit and then ESPN and Star Wars. And I just got to ask, you know, what was your process? What did your process look like for collecting all these stories? Because, you know, I'm, I was just blown away by how many stories you have in there. How did you go about collecting all of those? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I read a lot. Um, I read from a lot of different sources. I read a lot of history for this book. I read a lot of sort of, you know, pop culture uh, trend news for this book. Um, and, you know, I, I set for myself a really high bar. There's a lot of stories out there about hits. But I set for myself the bar of I'm only going to put it in this book if it if if either the story itself or the lesson from the story is surprising. Um, and so I, I just read and read and read and collected stories and put them in like little Evernote pages and organized them and um, tried to sort of see invisible threads between them. Um, and uh, and that's basically how how I did it, uh, you know, just nonstop reading. Um, I think the other probably surprising way that I collected some stories is by going to research papers and looking at the stories they use. So, for example, to give you one, one example of something that comes up in a lot of research papers um, in in talking about um, how bizarre things um, can become popular. A lot of sociologists were really into talking to me about Kid A. Uh, that Radiohead album that came out in like 2001 or something. Yep. I mean, the, the interest there is basically that Kid A is this unbelievably bizarre album that basically has no choruses that somehow sold a million copies. And the question is like, how in the world did like the strangest album, what's the story of the strangest like platinum album in music history? And the answer is that a lot of sociologists wanted to talk about is that um, a lot of times it's only people who have already established a following um, who have both the the popularity and the the balls to make something truly strange that also catches on that essentially they've won the popularity game and they're like okay now that I've won the popularity game I can push my art to its furthest possible acceptable point and that's and at that point that that sort of cusp of popularity and envelope pushing is I think where where most artistic works of genius live. So kind of following off of that, then you said something interesting that I, that I really would like to dig into a little bit more, which is once these people have made it, then they then they can then they can kind of begin to do that. So the question is, is what are things that people who are trying to make a hit or who are trying to have success? What can they do to market their product in the midst of this chaotic and distraction filled environment to, to be able to, as you say, kind of make it and, and win the popularity thing so that they and they can do things uh, they can do things like that? Yeah. So um, I like to give a, a, a metaphor um, about why I think, ironically, to go big, it pays to aim small um, on the Internet. So I was going to, to I was traveling to Japan a few years ago and uh, I was talking to my friend about Tokyo. And he told me, you know, there's this um, there's this bar in Tokyo that only serves like really specific whiskey and like prog rock vinyl records and i was like what the hell like okay that's super weird um i will try to go there but also um like how does that how can that possibly exist like how could a, a store like that possibly support itself when it's when it's so niche and small he was like well look you have to remember that tokyo is a metropolitan area of 35 million people 
So even if this product appeals only to like 0.1% of Tokyo, that's still like tens of thousands of devoted customers. And, it re- and I realized, sort of thinking about that story and writing this book, that the internet essentially is Tokyo. The internet is this metropolitan area of billions of people all connected across this you know, metaphorical urban transit system of the web. And if you make something for everybody, it probably won't catch on because nobody is everybody. But if you make something specific that you think maybe just a, a, a sliver of them will love, then you might be surprised to find that there are tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are willing not only to consume it, but also, and here's the key, to pay for it. And so in a weird way, the story of the internet whiskey bar is to go big, it pays to aim small. You know, towards the end of the book, you talk about, um, you know, the idea of implementing uh, the genius of Maya. Can you tell us about what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, Maya, M-A-Y-A, is one of my favorite concepts in the book. Um, It stands for most advanced yet acceptable. Um, And uh, the uh, father of industrial design in America, this guy named Raymond Lowy, uh, who designed basically all of Americana in the 1950s. He designed the Coca-Cola fountain, the Lucky Strike pack. He designed uh, the 1953 Studebaker car, which is one of the more influential car designs of the 20th century, the modern Greyhound bus, the modern Pennsylvania Railroad locomotive. Uh, he designed the pencil sharpeners that looked like eggs uh, with spindles. We've all seen them in our, in our high schools. Um, that was his design. He also designed the interior of the first NASA spaceship. I mean, this dude just designed freaking everything. And you know, the big question is, like, how did one guy understand what consumers wanted sort of across the cultural landscape? And the answer is uh, he understood that we are all torn between opposing forces to, on the one hand, seek novelty, find new songs, see new movies, understand new ideas, elect new politicians. But at the same time, we're, we're crossed with a deep preference for familiarity. We want new songs, yes, but only if they sound like songs that we already like. We love new movies as long as they're sequels, adaptations, and reboots. We love new ideas as long as they're fluent. That is, as long as they're easy to think about and we sort of intuitively agree with them. And we love new politicians as long as they tell us essentially what we've always wanted to hear. So we are across the cultural landscape, crossed between a, a need to discover and a preference for the familiar. And Maya captures this so beautifully. You want to make things that are advanced. You want to push the envelope, but you, you're, 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 you're caught. You're, you are uh, limited by the fact that people only want that which is relatively intuitive and acceptable. So you want to make things that are Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. I'm just curious, you know, whenever you were writing the book, what surprised you the most about, you know, what contributed to making a hit? I think I think the story, um, the importance of, of distribution and the the flukishness of some hits um, was among the more interesting things that I discovered that, you know, I, I, there's a story of um, of Rock Around the Clock that I so love. The Rock Around the Clock came out in 1954 and it was essentially a dud. Um, it played on the radio for, for a few weeks, uh, but it essentially was like lost and it was destined to be thrown into the dustbin of history. 
But then, in 1955, um, through a crazy series of events, a 10-year-old boy who owns the record, who happens to be the son of an actor in a movie called Blackboard Jungle, um, gets this song into the hands of the director of Blackboard Jungle. And the director likes this song so much, thinks it sort of a, a perfectly encapsulates the theme of this movie, which is juvenile delinquency, that Rock Around the Clock plays at the beginning of Blackboard Jungle, in the middle of Blackboard Jungle, and at the end of Blackboard Jungle. And it's only then, two weeks after the movie comes out, that the song becomes the number one song in the country um, and ends up becoming the second biggest uh, uh, hit uh, of the 20th century in terms of records sold. So, like, this is so crazy to think about. Like, the sound of Rock Around the Clock was always the same, right? It always sounded the exact same. But it had two complete opposite outcomes in, in 1954 and 1955. It was a dud in one year, and then nine months later, it became the second most popular song in American history. And I think this, this lesson is, is so incredibly interesting and, and important to remember because it forces us to, to sort of take stock of the fact that hits are probabilities. Nothing is certain. There is no guaranteed hit. There's only rules of human psychology, economics of distribution, and then luck. Um, and that essentially are, are, the, are the three sort of... Um, uh, concept the book is about you know i'm I'm sure some of our audience you know they're trying to make some hits what advice would you give them you know if they were asking hey derek what's one or two things that i can do that might help improve my odds for creating a hit what would you tell them i would say two things um uh the two sort of concepts I i would ask them to keep in their heads are first i'll repeat the slogan again if you're making something familiar the challenge is to make it surprising. But if you're working on something that is fundamentally surprising, your challenge is to make it familiar. So understand where you fall on that spectrum and then understand your charge. The second thing that I, I find myself talking a lot about with, um, with people who want to operationalize this book, um, I find myself talking to them a lot about um, occults. And, and the, the theme of cults comes up towards the end of this book. Um, and so the sociological definition of a cult is a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. So I'll unpack that. A positive rebellion, you have to make something that, that, is, that is positive in some way, against an illegitimate mainstream. So that means that your product isn't just a positive contribution to the world, it also answers a question about what's wrong with every other product or every other idea, right? If you're, let's say, Someone trying to run for president, and I don't know if any presidential hopefuls are listening to this show, but you know maybe this example is is uh, is useful. If you're running for president, you can't just come up with a positive slogan. You have to come up with a clear enemy, and this is true not only for the most antagonistic presidential runs, like say you know Donald Trump's, which clearly had an enemy. He came out and was like you know Mexican immigrants are racist and all of this, or are rapists. Um, he clearly had his own enemies. Um, but even Barack Obama, who, you know, theoretically, you know, theoretically actually had like a pretty hopeful, benevolent message, you know, hope and change, who can be offended by that, um, also said, I think rather interestingly, um, uh, he set up his, his, uh, his thesis against the cynics and the doubters. 
He would say, you know, there are cynics out there who say, there are doubters out there who say, you know, there's a, 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 a an idea in Washington that he still understood that to strengthen the message, you have to present it against a perceived opposition. All right. That means you have to cultify your message. You have to think of your product as the beginning of a cult. And so I'd encourage people to do both those things, to find the surprising and the familiar and the familiar and surprising. And then second, to establish their product as if it were a cult. You know, Derek, just as we're getting ready to conclude, we always have a couple of questions that we love to ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what's one thing you've started doing recently, either personally or professionally, that's helping you right now a lot? Um, deleting Twitter from my phone has helped me quite a lot um, because I can get addicted and uh, and sometimes I need to be like Odysseus and bind myself to the mast um, to keep myself from, from tweeting all day long. So um, uh, deleting Twitter is definitely something that, that has changed my life for the better. Derek, how do you learn best when you're trying to learn new information? I try to find connections between ideas as I read. Um, I think, I don't know how many different kinds of thinkers there are. I don't know that this idea I'm about to talk about has sort of an academic, formal understanding uh, among psychologists. But um, I think of, of vertical thinkers and horizontal thinkers. And there's some people who read and say, I want to know more. I want to, be, I want to, I want to go deeper. I want to become an expert in this subject. Um, when I read, I find myself drawing connections between ideas. Um, I read a story um, about uh, you know, the Trump administration's policy and immigration and find myself connecting it um, to uh, something in, in tax policy. Uh, I'll read about um, uh, some of the styles in um, Black Panther that people seem to like about it. And I'll think about how it connects to um, the evolution of musical styles um, that I, I, I just sort of instinctively uh, uh, think horizontally. And I'm not sure that that's good or bad. Um, it definitely probably has benefits and, and drawbacks, but that's just how I think, I suppose. I absolutely love that terminology, thinking horizontally and thinking vertically. And I guess uh, another question is, what are you learning right now? What am I learning right now? Um, uh, really interested in the concept of identity. Um, you know, in, in the book, I, I, tell, I, I talk about the history of first names um, and talk about how for most of human history, like we pretty much just recycled first names. And then um, only in the 18th, 19th century do we realize that first names were identity. And you needed to change first names and keep your first name relatively unique because you were your first name. Um, I think that just in that small story about how the Industrial Revolution and urbanization in the 19th century introduced the concept of identity through nomenclature um, lives an interesting idea, which is that we define ourselves in such interesting ways, both um, alone and and sort of in antagonism against other people. That, for example, there's no such, you can't have a concept of whiteness if you don't realize that there aren't people who aren't white. Um, you can't really have a concept um, of, uh, of, of maybe even um, religious identity 
um, if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are similarly ambivalent um, about religion and religion, religious ambivalence becomes an identity um, once it comes up against religiosity. That in many, many ways, it seems that we identify ourselves um, not in vacuums, but um, and not merely in environment, but in uh, but antagonistically against other things that we identify against as much as we identify with. And that idea is really interesting to me. Is that what you're working on right now? Are you working on a new book right now? I am working on several ideas for a new book, um, uh, but I, I, I can't talk about them just that's, yet. That's okay. That's okay. Um, well, Derek, we loved this book. And so if people want to find it best or connect with you, how can they best do that? They can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm trying to stay away from time to time. They can follow me at DK Thomp, D-K-T-H-O-M-P. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Um, fastest might be some online bookstore like Amazon, but um, uh, the paperback is, uh, you know, at bookstores and at, uh, at airports all over the place. So um, I do hope you buy it. It was just so much fun to write, and I'm really honored that you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. So Todd, that's a great conversation with Derek what's a couple of things that you took away from it for one I need to like learn how to be a musician because I'm gonna go make a hit now hey so be on the lookout for Spotify hey be looking at my SoundCloud I don't even have a SoundCloud but whatever it's fine um no on a serious note with which I'm very rarely ever serious but um this book in this conversation with him was phenomenal because I've always like he brought to light some things that I never thought about and i'll give you some examples of you know marketing and how marketing plays into this thing but not only that um you know mass effect and how uh it's it's a lot of times this person saying something to this person and this person says something to this person and you feel like everybody around you knows about something and so that's your world that you live in and therefore you think that everybody knows about it but it might not be everywhere yet and so it's just, it's all about perception uh, with these things, but then how true hits are actually made, like how these things actually come into fruition and how, how calculated businesses and companies are, um, especially like in the music industry and the movie industry um, and, and how they do this. It's just fascinating to me. And I love being able to listen to him talk about things like Pokemon Go, which was really interesting and in how that all, uh, how that all kind of happened. So definitely enjoyed that conversation. I know you got something too. Yeah, I got a couple of things. The first thing is a statement that he made, and it was, you know, for, for making hits, you got to make the surprising familiar, and you got to make the familiar yep. surprise. Yep. And so that really stood out to me. And then I think the other thing is that's strong. just how much of it isn't in our control yep. at all, yep. and just being content and being at peace with it. I'm going to put out great content. I'm going to do what I feel like I'm called to do in terms of being a, a creative person or being an artist, but honestly, there's a lot of things that are not in my control. Yeah. As John Acuff likes to say, you don't control the miracle. Boom. Boom. Drop that joke. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you learned a lot from Derek, you know, hit him up on Twitter. Let us know. Let Hit us up on Twitter and let hit us know us what up. you turned from it. You know, in our show notes, we have quotes from this episode to kind of let you know, here's the Look things at the that stood out to us. Yeah. Hit us up on Instagram. Let us know what you're reading. If you get this book, tag us in it. Tag Derek in it. Let us know Do where it. you got it. Let us know what you're currently reading as well. We always and listening to. I'm a, I said at the beginning. I know you know y'all send books, but let us know what podcast you're listening to. I mean, we don't we don't. I mean, we just listen to stuff all the time. Exactly. Let us know what you're learning from. Let us. We know love it. If you're going to a conference, 
Let us know what conference you're going to. By the way, we're going to some conferences, so be watching our feeds. We are. On Instagram and Twitter because we're going to stuff. Exactly. In fact, we are going to the Orange Conference, which is next week. Boom. So hit us up. We'll be in Atlanta during there, and we got some exciting stuff that we're looking forward to learning about. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening to us. You know, the best way you can show your appreciation is by writing a, a review of the podcast and leaving a rating on iTunes. It's simple. It's easy. We'll subscribe. Take less, take less than 60 seconds. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Exactly. Subscribe to the podcast. Best way to make sure you don't miss any of our next episodes. We have a great episode for you next week that we're really looking forward to releasing. So thanks so much for listening to this podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hickson And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all. <laughs>